This week on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast, Dario Franchitti, the motorsports icon's best known for his time as the face of IndyCar racing, where he won the Drivers' Championship four times and the Indy 500 three times. You go out there, you show up with a fast car, you do your absolute best. We went to Birmingham, Alabama to meet up with him back in 2014, where he opened up about his childhood and how his parents were barely able to make ends meet to keep his racing dreams alive. Pressure was not knowing if you were getting to go to the next race because there wasn't enough money there to, to get to that track. Which made his first IndyCar win the most emotional for his family. And I think he thought it was worth everything, all that sacrifice in that very moment. Frank Heedy's now a commentator for the sport and details the crash that ultimately ended his career. What do you remember from that day in Houston? Nothing, I've lost five weeks. But we begin with Frank Heedy's younger years in Scotland. How did you get into racing in the first place? My dad's fault, really. Um, my dad was a, was a, uh, a fan. He raced on, on weekends. It was his hobby. Um, and was the first thing I can remember, really, is being at a racetrack with him. So whether it was going and watching him or whether it was going sitting in front of the TV watching Formula One races in the sort of late 70s, that was where it, where it all started. How old were you when you really started getting into it and what did the schedule entail? started racing when I was 10 um, and it got more sort of serious to the point when I think I was 15, 16, I was doing my exams. Well, I finished my English exam. I jumped on the plane, went to Italy, raced the European Kart Championships and came back for my history exam. <laughs> and I understand oftentimes you would wake up Monday mornings um, in the van and have to go to school. Oh yeah. Absolutely, you know, most of the, when we were racing within the UK, my dad would, you know, he'd finish work on a, maybe a Thursday or a Friday, drive down to the kart track, wherever that would be, practice, race. Right after the race, he'd jump in the, in the van again. We'd go in the back, Marino and I, if my sister was there, the, the beds, we all had our own, our own bunk beds there. Wake up Monday morning and um, school was, was on the agenda, though I would try very, very hard to get out of that if I could. Uh, t tell about this van. It was um, the back sort of third was, was for the carts and all the, the racing stuff. And then the front two thirds was um, accommodation, bunk beds, you know, bathroom, shower, kitchen, all that sort of stuff. We did a lot of miles in that van. Your brother told me at times uh, there was barely enough money to even put fuel in the van to get to races. How tight did things get financially at some point? Uh, you would have to ask my dad that. Um, Be because he, he kept that reasonably private. I, I mean, he, he didn't even really let you guys know just how much money he put into the racing pursuits. Well, I don't think he actually knows how much money he put oh, okay. in because he said he started to add up once and uh, gave up. <laughs> it was starting to freak him out a little bit. Um, but no, he... he he kept it. Uh, he kept that pretty quiet. Um, you could tell at times there was a lot of pressure, though. Your parents uh, financed your early racing career from the money made off your father's ice cream distributorship, and then they also refinanced their house. You mentioned the pressure. Um, how much did you feel that pressure, <clears throat> given that? Well, people would say at times 
whether it was you know going down to the wire for an IndyCar championship or the last lap of an Indianapolis 500, people would say, oh, the pressure, the pressure. And I'd say, well, really, that's, I didn't feel that as pressure. Pressure was not knowing if you were getting to go to the next race because there wasn't enough money there to, to get to that track or or any of those things or at the end of a season sitting there going oh, what's what's going to happen next year that was that, that's pressure and hoping you don't wreck the car well the you know with the cart carts weren't so bad to fix but you know the first year in cars was difficult because if yeah if I crashed that that was that was really it um, I was lucky obviously in the fact that my mum and dad or my dad had refinanced the house without telling my mum and then my mum didn't kill him when she found out, but had very understanding team owner too, or team owners, and um, that sort of got us through that first year. Your mom has never been to the Indianapolis 500 before, but says she was actually considering going to the one before uh, your retirement. Why is she unable to actually watch you race in person? I don't know. <laughs> I would imagine the stress. Um, there's nothing you can do. You have no control over it, so you just got to kind of sit there. Although she's got a technique, she watches on TV and does the ironing, and that's her way of uh, of, of chilling out. So she tells me. Well, that's what you were saying. Yet your dad will go to, you know, many of the races and watch in person. Uh, he he was obviously uh, very involved in the the career you know early on helping out a lot but as you you know progressed in racing almost overnight he went from doing everything to becoming a spectator how difficult do you think that was <coughs> uh, for him i think it's it must be a difficult thing for for a, a you know a father who who does that who does everything um for, for their kid um, and judging by the amount of fathers and parents that do it badly it must be a really difficult thing there's not many parents I would say that that a team maybe kind of embraces and because they just let their their, their they let their, their 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 kid get on with it and my dad I think was great at that just from the point when I started racing cars he's like you're now these guys are now looking after you. They know more than me. You know, go have fun. He would come to the races. He would support me in any way and come to almost every race. Same with Marino, but he just let the team get on with it. Tell about the picture of you and your dad <clears throat> on your parents' coffee table that was taken of you guys the day after your first Indy 500. Yeah, it's a picture. Um, I think I'm in the car and I'm just looking at him. <laughs> He's kind of looking back, and we're, you know, it's like, how did how did we get here? Um, yeah, that was if if I hadn't won another race or another championship or another Indianapolis 500, that that would have still that would have been a great moment. That was like was a great moment, and that was that was, you know, that was. Um, I hope, and I think he thought it was worth everything, all that sacrifice in that very moment. We we got to share there, that was pretty cool. Your brother Marino, when he was uh, telling me about that, said still to this day when he sees the picture, he gets emotional. Um, your mother, when I brought it up, she actually got choked up on the phone <laughs> describing it. What about that picture specifically is so meaningful? Um, I think to, because of everything that has happened, you know, that, that, I think I was, what would I have been there? 34? 30, I just turned 35. Um, I've been racing at that point for 25 years. 
Um, and so it was just a, you know, that was kind of a, a it was a big, a big milestone in, in, in my life. And I think, you know, my dad's and as I said, everything the whole family had been through, it was pretty, uh, it was special. How would you describe the feeling of winning your first of three Indianapolis 500s? I mean, obviously joy, but also surprised that it happened because the more, the more you compete at Indianapolis, the more you realize that you have absolutely no control over what happens. You go out there, you show up with a fast car, you do your absolute best, um, but there's so many little things can take you out of it. And um, so that feeling of just almost surprise and uh, relief that it happened, that everything had, had come together. How would you describe what the scene's like <laughs> there? The first one was mayhem because it was raining very heavily. So they made victory circle. There was photographers, there was people, there was somewhere in there were the team guys. Uh, my family, and it, we were all trying to sort of celebrate, and people were trying to get the pictures they needed to get, and it was just pandemonium, and it was awesome. And, and what would you say is the most satisfying <clears throat> moment from your career? I'm lucky I've got a few to choose from. Um, I really don't know. To put it down to one, I, I couldn't. I couldn't. I mean, any one of those Indianapolis 500 wins of the three, um, obviously the four championships but there's there's races that you know you wouldn't even think of you wouldn't even realize i probably finished fifth or tenth or something and i think well that was one of the best races i ever drove you know that kind of thing the lack of recognition that you've received in europe has been bothersome some to you um what what, what about that kind of got into you okay you know, it's, I think when you, do it, when you do a good job, it's nice to be recognized. Um, and then when you see the, some of the stuff that, that uh, is recognized, you think, really? Really, dude? You know, as a, as a nation, Scotland produces some really good drivers with some, some incredible results. You know, even this latest generation, you know, Alan McNish won three Le Mans, 24-hour races. Has he had any recognition? Absolutely not. It's, it's, it's disgraceful. Um, you know, as a, as a nation, um, we've, we've done pretty well in racing. You're like many children growing up in the UK. You wanted to be a Formula One champion. Uh, why did you never end up going to Formula One? Uh, timing, opportunity, I would say. Um, the, uh, the opportunity was there when I first came to America. It's one of those situations, you know, you wait for a bus come along and two come along. Well, I'd been racing DTM in, in Germany with Mercedes and I tested for McLaren. They'd organized that I test for McLaren and um, then they organized for me to come to America and race in an in IndyCar. Well, as that was going on, McLaren were looking for a test driver, so then they invited me to, to come over and, and talk to them about that. But I didn't, for various reasons, I didn't, I didn't take the, the, that, that chance um, take, the, take up the opportunity I was given. Um, so, at that point, my, my career path went to, to America. And that, had I done that, things could have been a lot different in, in a good way and a lot different in a bad way. Um, 
I was never sort of so overawed with Formula One, I was prepared to, th to throw everything else I had away to, to pursue it. So, you know, it was in some ways, yeah, it would have been nice to have had a go. In other ways, would I give up even one of my wins at Indianapolis for it? Would, would I hell? No. After the 2007 IndyCar season, you make the decision to make the switch to uh, NASCAR. What, what was attractive to you about the opportunity? And you're laughing. I'm looking back now. I'm wondering what was attractive. Um, but the, I, the challenge, though, right? I mean, you, it you, was. It you was just one in IndyCar, and I'd been racing IndyCars for a long time, and I, I just felt I needed that new challenge. I'd been with the same team for ten years. With the team green became Andretti Green, um, and I, I, I just wanted that challenge. And Chip came along and said, "Hey, let's. Look, you want to do this?" I didn't do my research. I didn't know what I was getting into. I hadn't even drive, driven a stock car when I, I hadn't even been to, I'd been to one race, I think, before I signed a deal. No clue what I was getting into, um, how different it was going to be. And so, yeah, that was uh, an interesting decision and um, fairly quickly became apparent it wasn't the, the, the right thing for me to be doing. Um, became not bad at it on you know, certain occasions I was able to, to do okay, generally struggled quite a bit. It was, uh, it was tough. You mentioned the struggles. I mean, 10 starts, failed to qualify twice, finished with the best of 22nd. But, but, but it, you know, it might not look good on paper, but it was a very limited period of time you actually, you, you know, w were there. So to what extent do you think that was a good enough indication of how you could have done well. had you continued? It was a bit better, you know, qualified on the pole at Watkins Glen, uh, qualified in the front row at Bristol and led a bunch of laps. So the nationwide series, I was the cars were a little closer to what I was used to maybe. I was able to sort of start making some headway there. Um, and so I felt that was where I was seeing the progression. Um, and in my last cup start, I think I qualified seventh. Um, but it was, it really felt like I was, I was a lot of time out there drowning, you know, I was trying to, to, to learn on, on, on the run. It was just such a, a different experience. So it was, yeah, it was, it was humbling and it was um, very, um, it, was a, it was an interesting time. But when I got back to IndyCar, those struggles, I think, made me uh, a better driver and a better, um, better equipped to deal with all the different things. You since said the advice you'd give to a driver in a similar situation would be make sure you have good equipment and start below the Cup Series. Um, explain why and what actually about it made it more of a challenge than you were expecting. Well, you think, okay, it's a car. You race IndyCar, it's a car. You race Formula One, it's a car. You race NASCAR, it's a car. Well, they are cars, but they're completely different. And everything I learned on the way up, I, you look at all these cars around you, I, the stepping stones, each car was slightly bigger than the one before, slightly faster, but it was the same idea going up. I got in a, a stock car and it was, and anything I'd learned, I, threw, I had to throw away. None of it made any sense. And what's that like? <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting because I went straight in at the top level. I went in there at the, it's the equivalent of showing up and, and, and playing in the NBA when you've never played a game of basketball before. W was that kind of ego or did, did you think that was the best decision? To... It, that, was it ego? Eh, maybe a little bit, but it was more of what I was, that was, the, that was what Chip said, that's what we're going to do. Okay. Um, and 
just, it, you know, I didn't have the time to go and to do the whole learning thing. And I wasn't really that interested in doing the whole learning thing. And had I been prepared to do that, things might have been a little different, but it wasn't the right thing to do. IndyCar and the Indianapolis 500 what fueled my desire, my passion to do it. Um, so I should have, you know, that, that, uh, that showed me pretty quickly that I was missing IndyCar and that's what I should be doing. And you came back and the rest is obviously history, but it was September 2008. Uh, you go to Detroit, uh, kind of take it from there. You know, my, my, my agents were in different parts of the world. Uh-huh. And so Chip and I just sat down and hammered out this deal. Um, it took us eight hours. <laughs> oh, it did. It took us, well, because the stories make it seem like it, you know, was happened five seconds on a napkin. Well, what, what was discussed during those eight hours? Well, the eight hours, basically, Chip's like, do you want to do it? I was like, yeah, the chance to drive for the target team. Are you kidding me? So like, okay. He's like, well, uh, I'll pay you this much. And I went, I'm not doing it for that, Chip. <laughs> well, what do you want? I told him, he's like, oh, man. Okay, okay, we'll do it. That was the money part, it was like literally that quick. I was like, okay, that's easy. And then he wanted me to sign a napkin, saying <laughs> I was doing that. I'm like, Jeff, I can't sign a napkin, it's not legally binding, come on, man. Well, I need to go, you know, I need this, I need to be able to go to Target Monday morning. I'm like, Chip, I will have a contract ready. And we just kept arguing about this bloody napkin all day. Come on, man. Everything else was agreed, but just this napkin, just sign it. And eventually Chip went to dinner, he's like, hey, Get this guy to sign it. If he doesn't, if he, if he won't sign it, find someone that will. Next morning, 7 a.m., we had a full contract ready to go. And so, but I, you never signed the napkin? Never signed the napkin, and uh, Mike Hull uh, and, and our guys worked it out, and Chip woke up the next morning, and we'd, we'd done a deal. But I literally went to Detroit to watch my brother race in sports cars. And I stood at turn one at Detroit. I watched the Indy cars go through there, and I just shook my head, and I'm like, like I didn't think I wanted to get back in an IndyCar. I just thought I've been there, done it. And I watched them go through that corner. I watched Scott go through there, all crossed up in the target car. And I walked back and I sat on the tail lift of the target truck. I talked to Mike Cullen and Mike's like, hey, what's going on? And I just shook my head. I'm saying, Mike, I, sh- I really want to come back and do IndyCar, but all the good seats have gone. And he looked at me and he went, well, that might not be true. And that's how the whole, the whole thing started. You're one of your race engineers who said your attention to detail is just maddening. Um, in what ways? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I think most drivers are kind of like that. I might take it to an extreme. They call it attention to detail. Some people call it OCD. <laughs> what I do just, you think it is? It's attention to detail. And, um, you know, when you work with people in racing, generally the attention to detail is tiny because it's the smallest difference that makes, the, makes winning or losing. You know, and, and everybody you work with has is, is got that same mindset. And I learned a lot of that, I think, from, from Jackie Stewart watching the way he worked. The fact that he would take, get the truck drivers to turn the truck tires so that Bridgestone was at the top. And then they would, in white pen, write out you know, the Bridgestone logo that kind of stuff. I, I mentioned I, I taped an episode with Mario Andretti out at uh, Fontana and he, he was telling me that the, the track or the stadium whatever you want to call it can be filled with people uh, you know he can be driving at 200 miles an hour and, and if he if one of his friends tells him what he's going to be wearing and the general area of the stands he's going to be in he can actually pick the friend out 
going at 200 miles an hour. Um, and, and I found that to be amazing. But what do you actually see when you're driving? I try, depending on the track, on an oval, I, uh, it's like looking down a tunnel for me. I'm picking out, you know, if going down Indianapolis, for instance, turn one, I'm picking out my turning point from, from basically three quarters of a mile away coming down and you start to comes into focus. And then I start to pick out the apex point, then the exit wall. I'm just, it's literally like looking down a tunnel for me. Um, I can pick out on the track the smallest little thing. Like what? Like a tiny little piece of debris, you'll see it and it'll come into focus. Um, you get end up with some strange things. I had a fly inside my helmet at a test. It's interesting what happens to a fly under about 5G's at Phoenix. This fly was sort of flying around the helmet and it went through turn one and the fly went and it was stuck to the right side of the helmet. I went, okay, that's interesting. And back it comes and it was just kept getting stuck. It was, it was hilarious. It left the right side of the helmet. I can't remember, but it was getting flown across the visor anyway and it kept getting stuck and eventually I slowed down and let the poor guy out. What do you think about <clears throat> while driving? <laughs> All kinds of things. Um, Can you daydream? No, God no. Okay. Your your mind, my mind is processing everything that's going on. You know what? The driving almost has to be second nature. So you're sitting there thinking as you're driving around. How, okay, you're thinking about the car. What's the balance doing? What do I need to adjust? Okay, how am I going to get past this guy? Right, one more pit stop to go. Okay. Yeah. Right, what's happening here? You're just you're processing all that other information, and the driving is almost second nature. What's your deal with seats and steering wheels? Ha. It's always very important for me to be comfortable in the car. And so I was always working on the seat, the steering wheel, every, everything about the comfort of the car was very important to me. How I sat in the car. Um, you know, some tracks, the steering wheel too close, too far away, the seat would hurt a bit, or, you know, I couldn't. I was thinking about the seat rather than driving the car and thinking about where it was uncomfortable. And so that was important. And that turned out actually with the accident, because I was so fussy, turned out to have uh, really saved me from worse injury. You once uh, had the girl who does your racing suits move an embroidered sponsor logo over by two millimeters? No. That's what TK says. TK exaggerates. TK has never let the truth get in the way of a good story in his life. <laughs> he is, honestly. He also says you take 15 minutes to get in the car when most other drivers would take two? I take 10. 10. Say, typical TK. When, when most <laughs> other drivers take two? They probably take five, I take 10. Okay, and why, why is that? Well, you gotta be comfortable. You know, and I have a different way to get in the car too. Most drivers- you, you really have a routine. Yeah, most drivers put their helmets on, everything on, get in the car. I get in, I put my, my earplugs in, balaclava on, then I get in the car, then I put my helmet on, hands, device, gloves, everything else. So I do things a little bit differently or did things a little bit differently. I, I wanna take you back to a tougher time uh, that sh should have been uh, you know, a highlight of your career, the final race of the 2011 uh, season uh, where you end up winning the championship, but there was a horrific 15 car crash early in the race. How quickly did you know something was really wrong? Uh, it, it took a while. Um, we knew there had been a bad accident. Um, Tony, myself and Marco were in, in, in the IndyCar trailer when the doctor came in and 
and told us that Dan had died. Um, so that would have been about, I don't know, half an hour later. I don't know, it could have been half an hour, it could have been four hours, I really don't, don't remember. You've, you knew Dan Weldon since he was six years old, racing go-karts in England. Um, your reaction to getting that news? Ah, it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. I mean, it was... Yeah, just horrible. You know, I was talking to uh, Tony Kanan, and um, he, he brought up when talking about that, uh, the, the passing of another one of both of your close friends, uh, Greg Moore, uh, who, who was in, you know, a fatal accident in a cart race that uh, the two of you were uh, competing in, and w when that happened, you know, I, I know you were seemingly, a, you know, an emotional wreck at the time. You go back to Scotland, you don't want to go, go out of your house. Um, Tony said, though, actually, the Dan Weldon's passing actually hit both of you even harder than that. Um, in what ways? I, I have to say, Greg's passing hit me really hard, as did Dan's. Yeah, just just a horrible thing for for anybody to have to go to go through. Um, you know, they're, they're in, you know whether you're oh, certainly their families. It's just, it was terrible. You and Tony at Dan's funeral decide to lighten it up and uh, <coughs> you know, give funny speech. Uh, what was the thinking behind that? Well, that was at the memorial service in India afterwards. Um, Brian, Herta, Tony, and myself thought, you know, well, let's, let's, let's tell some funny Dan stories here because there's a long, long list of funny Dan stories. I mean, every day was an adventure. And so we, we just thought we would do that and, um, and, and let people in, into some of the stories that we hadn't told before. Some we had, some we hadn't. Some we still can't tell. How safe do you think the sport is today? Um, I would say the, 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 the simple answer to a difficult question is it's safer than it was last year. They've improved the safety inside the cars a little bit more since my accident. Um, this new DW12 is safer than the car we raced. Um, and that you know, Dan had his accident in. So there's a constant you know, evolution of safety. They've got to keep on it though. We're lucky with the IndyCar series, that Dr. Terry Trammell, um, who's put a lot of us, including me, back together several times, he's really focused on that now, on the safety of, of, the, of IndyCar. Um, and the FIA are doing it in Europe, but we need to keep pushing on that. It's something, you know, the cars keep getting quicker. We've got to keep making the cars and the tracks safer. The, the tracks have got a long way to go. How do you reconcile the dangers of the sport with your passion for it? As long as it's been going on, that's something you've had to reconcile. And I think you, you have to accept the danger if, you, if you're going to participate. Um, you try and make the sport as safe as possible. Um, you know, I think everybody that gets in a car, they're very calculating in what they do. It's not like a gung-ho, crazy thing. It's a very calculating thing you do when you drive a racing car. But there are dangers. And I think if you accept them, if you want to do the job, if you want to go out there and race the car. How do you, your 
the severity of some of your past accidents compared to the Houston one that ultimately ended your career? As far as crashes in the racing car, I mean, I had one in 2000 when I broke my pelvis and um, gave myself a pretty good concussion. I was back in the car after three weeks with that one. That was probably a little soon, but you're, you're ready to go, you know? I mean, the pelvis was still rubbing and all that sort of stuff at that point, but that was a little too soon maybe. This one, I mean, it was, I don't know. It was, it was obviously painful. The fact it was multiple injuries kind of slowed me down a little bit. I think in 2000, it took me two years to get over the concussion I had then. Uh, I didn't have the luxury of time to recover from it. You know, if I had just stayed out of the car for six months, I'd, my, I'd have been done. So, um, and in, in this instance, the fact the doctors made a decision for me was, was pretty helpful. What do you remember from that day in Houston? I've nothing, I've lost five weeks. You've lost five weeks. Five weeks in my life. Two, two weeks before, I think, three weeks after. Um, two, I, two weeks before the crash and three yeah, weeks after. I remember my friend Albert's wedding in Portland, I think two weekends before. And that's about it. At the time, I, was, I could remember snippets. I could remember nothing about the accident, not even the race. And then I don't know if it's because my brain started to swell up or whatever, but the memories then just shut down, nothing. Weeks after the race, you're in Miami staying with uh, Tony Kanan at, at his home while you're in town visiting um, some doctors. Um, he, he said at that time, you're still talking really slow. You're sleeping up to 18 hours a day. How, how would you describe how you were feeling then? I was really feeling bad. I mean, I knew I was feeling, I was struggling because I got to TK's house. I got in the, in the lounge. I hadn't seen Tony for a, a good couple of three weeks. And normally we'd just sit and, you know, talk crap for hours and just, you know, annoy each other and tell jokes. And, and literally after five minutes, I'm like, TK, I need to go to bed. I went upstairs and I slept for 18 hours. Next morning I got up, went to the doctors and, and uh, that's when I spoke to Dr. Olvey. And uh, Dr. Hart's one of his uh, um, colleagues. And that's kind of when I started to realize there was a bit of an issue going on here. How did you find out? you would never be able to race again? Um, the final sort of, I mean, I talked to Dr. Trammell about my back and he was saying, this, I, you know, I, I just, I, this is not good. The old fractures combined with the new fractures is, it, you know, you're, you're, you're really taking a gamble here. The, the, chances of, I'm paraphrasing here, but the chances of, of uh, you know, if you have another impact, another concussion, you know, you're really setting yourself up for some big problems. I spent the weekend thinking, how can I get around this? I wonder if I can do this. And every sort of avenue I tried to go down, way of getting around this issue, it came at the same thing, you can't do it. Um, and so I think on the Monday, I picked up the phone and called Chip and told him what was going on. During those couple days after you originally got the news from the doctor, I understand you kind of had, had the phone off, sort of disappeared, spent a lot of time in the study at your house. Um, what, what's going on then? As I said, I was just trying to find a way around it. You know, I still felt I wanted to race. Um, 
I wanted to see if there was any way I could do it. You know, I said, okay, well, can I do something else? And no, the, the answer came back the same every time. So that was it. How challenging is it to accept that? <laughs> it's, some days are more challenging than others. Some days it really sucks. The one thing I do have is I'm every 99 days out of 100, I'm just really grateful I'm here. Do you know what I mean? I'm just, I don't care about any, anything else or the fact that I'm just here. I'm able to, to be here um, and you know, live my life. So that's, that's the overriding emotion. In speaking to your mom, she said, due to the risk that's inherently involved in the sport, she said, as a mother, you wait a lifetime for the day when your son will say he's retiring and no longer racing anymore. And she knew when the public announcement was coming, obviously, but when she saw it online for the first time, she said she still burst out crying because you never want that decision to be taken away. Um, you know, from your son. Um, what do you think you'll miss most about it? The first thing that comes to mind is I'll miss, I'll miss the, that sort of driving into victory circle, but that might, not have ne might never have happened again. I might never have won another IndyCar race, but I will miss that feeling. Um, but I'll miss those days when I'm in the car and I'm just really, the, you know, the car's doing what I want and I'm driving well and I'm just having a good time. And that might be a test day, that might be the last lap of the Indianapolis 500. It might be, who, who knows? But I'll miss, I'll miss that feeling of, 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 of driving the car. What are the lingering effects uh, with the head? Um, they get less every day, but you know, memory's pretty bad. I forget words. Um, mood swings. I've been touch wood. I've been not bad on this one. The first concussion, the 2001. Wow, mood swings were incredible. How long have the doctors said it'll take you to be fully back to normal? They don't know. You and I could have the same accident with the same symptoms and have completely different recoveries. It's, um, it's a, there's still a lot of unknowns with the, with the brain. Um, and it just comes down to the fact that I, another hit to the, to the head, another concussion would not, uh, would not be good. To, to what extent um, are you looking forward to figuring out the next chapter? of your life. Think of all the fun things, all the cool stuff, all the great people I've got to meet. Um, okay, what's next? What am I going to do? All those things that I didn't have the time to do, I'm going to get, um, I'm going to get a chance to do that. I want to go on a road trip, oh, great. Jump in the car and drive to, to Sicily, fantastic, I can do that now. So there's all these different things that um, I'm going to get a chance to do. Um, I understand you have somewhere between a 10 and 20 car collection. Um, what does it entail? It's in there somewhere. <laughs> um, well, for the first time, they're all in one spot because, as I said, I moved home to Scotland. Um, so I brought um, my, my, the cars that I had in, in the US back to, to the UK as well. Um, so it's, you know, my, the main sort of thing, it's, it's um, Ferraris and Porsches are my main sort of um, loves, I guess. Um, some, race, some of my old racing cars in there. Pace cars from Indianapolis. A 65 pace car from the year Jimmy won at Indy. I mean, I could go on endlessly. I could, can, yeah, each day, I could buy a different car almost every day. I just, I've got an 
an endless fascination with cars. And uh, you have a special garage for it? Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunately full now, so it's going to be one out, one in. What would be the first edition, and what's the uh, favorite of what you have? Well, uh, the problem is the the cars right now. The values is, is are just going crazy, um, absolutely insane. So um, most of the things that I'm looking at, I should have bought years ago. And I'm not prepared to buy the top of the market. So, but there's a long, long list of cars. So I, I understand you keep like all your memorabilia from your entire career at, at your house, including like 60 of your helmets. Uh, why? Well, just as we're sitting here talking about, you know, different memories, little things in that room remind me of, of, of memories. There's, there's, um, there's an invitation to one of the parties that Greg threw. Um, there's a, there'll be a, you know, there's a picture in my office of Dan, Tony, Brian, and myself. Um, you know, there's something that, that Scott Dixon gave me as a gift, or just little things like that. Um, right through my career, from day from day one, I've I've, I've kept little things just to kind of jog my memory and remind me of these fun things. I've got, you know, helmets of, of other drivers that, um, that I admire or friends of mine. Some of my heroes I've got that managed to find some of their helmets, you know, just stuff like that. It's, um, and I know you have an entire room devoted to Jim Clark at the house. Your mom has a different name for it though. She says you're a hoarder. Uh, yeah, yeah, at least I think that's what she said. <laughs> yeah, the, a lot of people have been sending me these, uh, these reality TV shows on hoarders is, you know, is this shoe. But oh, yeah. It's very organized. It's not all just laying. Well, right now it's kind of laying around because I just had two containers arrive from America mm -hmm. with all my with cars and different stuff. But it's, it's very organized. This was a lot of fun. I uh, appreciate you making Thank the time you. to do this. Thanks for listening to my chat with Dario Franchitti. To see more from our interview, including a tour of the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum, Go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Also remember to give us a rating, review, and subscribe. Thanks again for listening.